Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. This is your host, Pastor Alex, and we're back at it once again in our Lutheran Confession series. This week, we will begin our journey through the small called articles that Dr. Martin Luther wrote. Uh, These were written in approximately 1537 and uh, really could be probably the most fundamental Uh, confessions or articles of confessions from Luther's eyes. And so we will see uh, unpacked over the next couple of episodes how he deals with some of these interesting doctrines. And as normal, uh, there will be very little to actually no bantering on Tuesday episodes. I find it just to be easier to dive right into the material and get through kind of my... uh, track of thought that I want to get done. And I allow Fridays to be a little bit more, uh, you know, house cleaning and banter friendly and all that. So if you like, uh, you know, this show and you want to hear it in advance, then you can join us on Patreon. That's the only, uh, you know, spiel I'll give you is join us there for a dollar a month or $10 a year. And you can get full access to all of the works that I do behind the scenes. So we find ourselves, Moving through the Book of Concord, and you know, we we kind of take in a few turns, um, kind of spur of the moment, really. Uh, and we want to ensure that we continue on our track teaching through the theology of the Lutherans. There's a lot of similarities, I hope, thus far that you have heard that kind of parallel to uh, the Reformed doctrine or the Calvinist doctrine or more Protestant heavy doctrine. So as we continue this series, I know we will hit some rough waters uh, for for you, the listener, when we get to the series on the sacraments. I, uh, I embracing 
to probably lose a few of you as uh, longtime listeners or supporters because I'm going to really hammer out my view of the sacraments. And I, you know, I pray uh, that you, you do listen and I pray that you just see a different view than what you've been taught. Cause I know a lot of you that listen uh, probably come from a reformed background. That's where I came from. And, and I know some of you probably just like the way I, I handle the shows and, and you enjoy the content that I bring. And that's wonderful. I'm such a, I'm very appreciative of that, but you know, digging into the Lutheran faith on a much deeper level and being a Lutheran pastor myself and, uh, expounding on the scripture, um, I find myself, you know, at a, I don't say at a standstill, but I, I find myself having to explain the Lutheran faith to a lot of people because there's a lot of misconceptions. And so, uh, there's, there's some things that are very near and dear to my heart and I am very, very passionate about it. And that is the sacraments. So in a few short weeks, we will reach that point and we will deliver uh, a series on the sacraments. We are at five episodes as I record this one. And I'll probably record episode six just after I finish this one. And then we haven't even touched the Lord's Supper yet. So without further ado, let's dig into the small called articles and see what in the world are these. Uh, because really, truthfully, until I got the Book of Concord and I started digging into the Lutheran faith, I had never heard of this. I known Luther's small catechism and his large catechism just from you know my runnings in the theological circles I was in, but I, one, never really read them. Even through confirmation in the Lutheran church, I never really read them. And uh, I'd never really expounded them. And so uh, this is a great opportunity for us to do that. So we're going to look at the small called articles, and then we're going to look at Luther's small catechism. Those are the kind of the next two dockets uh, that we'll take on. And then we'll get to the sacrament series. We will not go through the large catechism at this time. We might do that later, but not right now. So let's look at the introduction for the small called articles, and we'll uh, provide some context to what exactly it is. So here we go. Articles of Christian doctrine, which were, which were to have been presented by our party at the Council of Mantua, or everywhere else the council was to, be, to have been convened in which were to indicate what we could or could not accept or yield. This was written by Dr. Martin Luther in the year 1537. Introduction. During the early years of the Reformation, Luther and others proposed again and again that a general council of the church to be con uh, convened to discuss and arbitrate the questions of doctrine and practice that were in controversy. When sterner measures had failed to expedite the Protestant heresies, Pope Paul III finally called a council in June 1536 to meet in uh, Mantua the following May. Although the council did not actually convene until 1545, and then in Trent, the papal summons confronted the Lutherans with the necessity of deciding what their attitude towards such a council should be. This was especially necessary since the situation was no longer the same as it had been when Martin Luther first appealed to a council. Under these circumstances, the elector of Saxony instructed Luther in a letter in December 11th, 1536 to prepare a statement indicating articles of faith in which the confessions might be made for the sake of peace and the articles which no concessions could have been made. Luther set 
to work at once, and these have been called the small called articles. By December 28th, the document was ready to be reviewed by a small group of theologians assembled in Wittenberg, who, among other things, proposed addition uh, to the section of the invocation of the saints. The first eight signatures were asphyxiated at this time, Philip Melanchthon's with reservation. And so uh, this is, we have kind of a preference, a preface of Dr. Luther here. um, And he just kind of highlights the premise of writing this. Again, this is essentially just another assertion of Lutheran faith and theology. uh, And it is to uh, demonstrate what they allow and what they do not allow in uh, their teachings. All right, so let's uh, get into it, and we'll now start to kind of survey, if you would. Uh, this There is no explanations to it. It is simply asserting truths and rejecting heresies, according to Luther. Uh, we have it broken into three parts. Part one is on divine majesty. Uh, part two covers Christ and faith, the mass, chapters and monasteries, and the palpacy. And then part three is a little bit more extensive. This is where we will see sin, the law, repentance, the gospel, baptism, which we will not cover in this episode or in in this little series, nor will we cover the sacrament of the altar, uh, the keys, confession, excommunication, ordination, and vocation, the marriage of priests, the church, how a man is justified before God and his good works, and then monastic vows and human traditions. That rounds out the three parts of the small called articles. Again, these were written in kind of a stance of a proclamation of faith. This is what they confess to believe. This is what they confess to see and experience through scripture, to be real and true to them. And they reject uh, contrary beliefs. And we will see Luther uh, rejecting a lot of that, especially as even the the authors of the Augsburg rejected much through their writings as we've reviewed on previous episodes. So let's look at part one and we will see how far we get today. Uh, only a couple quick statements on this and then part two is a bit more extensive. So part one, the first part of the articles treat the sublime articles of the divine majesty, namely one, the father, son, and Holy spirit, three distinct persons in one divine essence and nature are one God who created heaven and the earth, etc. That the Father was begotten by no one, the Son was begotten by the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. That the only that only the Son became man, and neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit. That the Son became man in this manner. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit without the cooperation of man, and was born of a pure, holy, and virgin Mary. Afterwards, he suffered, died, and was buried, descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God. He will come to judge the living and the dead as the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Catechism in common use for children teach. These articles are not a matter of dispute or contention, for both parties confess them. Therefore, it is not necessary to treat them at greater length. Part 2. The second part's of the articles contained uh, pertain to the office and works of Jesus Christ and to our redemption. Article 1, Christ and faith. The first and chief article is this, that Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, was put to death for our trans- 
trespasses, and raised again for our justification, Romans 4.25. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. God has laid upon him all the iniquities has laid upon him all the iniquities of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. Moreover, all have sinned, and they are justified by his by his grace as a gift through the redemption in uh, which is in Christ Jesus by his blood, Romans 3, 23 through 25. Insomuch as this must be believed and cannot be obtained or apprehended by any work, law, or merit, it is clear and certain that such faith alone justifies us, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 3. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, Romans 3.28. And again, that he, God himself, is righteous and he justifies him who has faith in Jesus, Romans 3.26. Nothing in this article can be given up or compromised, even if heaven and earth and things temporal should be destroyed. For as St. Peter says, there is no name, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. And this is, and, and with his stripes, <clears throat> we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. On this article rests all that we teach and practice against the Pope, the devil, and the world. Therefore, we must be quite certain and have no doubts about it. Otherwise, all is lost, and the Pope, the devil, and all the adversaries will gain victory. So Luther asserts right out of the gate with this second part to essentially take a stand against the Pope and uh, against all of his adversaries, uh, including the devil. Obviously, uh, Luther had a unique <laughs> hatred for the devil. It's quite funny in his writings. Um, but we we have to see and understand the climate and culture. And so I, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to some of the history of the Augsburg. But what we, what we know, you know, with Luther, and, and maybe we'll do a little bit closer examination when we get to Reformation Day this year, and we'll, we'll see kind of the history uh, behind Luther and uh, 1517 and the significance of that day, October 31st, where he nailed the 95 Thesis to the door in Wittenberg. We'll dig into a lot of that, but, you know, that, that'll that come in time. So uh, the what you should know now is Luther had a, dis, a strong distaste for the Pope, and the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, therefore is essentially equating the Pope to be the Antichrist, or a Antichrist, not the, but a. And so he uh, makes these bold statements saying that, you know, here in the article of Christ and faith, uh, this is what they believe, and he cites all sorts of scripture to uh, support his basis. And he says, this is where we, this is the hill we die on. This is the one that we take a stand with. If we give up on this and we give an inch, then the Pope, the devil, and all of our adversaries will gain victory. We must not jeopardize any of this doctrine. And I would venture to say that you as a listener would fully and utterly agree with every single thing I have just said because as a Protestant, these are the fundamental teachings of who Christ is and how faith is given. And we will expound faith a, a little bit deeper on a future episode. But we also talk, um, if you're interested, I'm just going to side note a little bit, but we're doing a Romans study, and we've just went through chapters 3, 4, and 5. We did 5 last Sunday and chapter 4 the Sunday before. And uh, we're, we're working through this, and we spent quite a bit of time Sunday night, which was last night, 
and working through this concept of justified by works. And are we justified by works or justified by faith? Because we reached the topic of Abraham being justified by faith. We parallel that to James. And we, talk, we talked pretty extensively about it. And I thought it was a wonderful topic. And uh, it got a lot of uh, minds moving. So, you know, if you want to join that study, you are more than welcome to join us on Patreon. And you can uh, catch up on all previous studies. They're all made available and you can uh, join the live studies and listen and participate and ask questions and and uh, assert various thoughts as you want. But it's a t- you know it's, it's it's tough because you know I made the comments last night around um, you know the Christian wants to look at our works. We want to see that as maybe that's our assurance. That's where we feel comfortable with. And so let's dig in now to Article Two. Uh, this is the mass. Uh, this one's a little bit longer. We won't read through uh, all 24 statements, but we'll read a few, and um, we will uh, get a general idea of what Luther himself is talking about. So he says, The mass and the palpacy must be regarded as the greatest and most horrible abomination because it runs into direct and violent conflict with, the, with this fundamental article. Yet above and beyond all th- others... It has been the supreme and most precious of the palpal idolaters. For it is held that the sacrifice or work of the mass, even when offered by an evil scoundrel, delivers men from their soul from their sins, both here in this life and yonder in purgatory. Although in reality this can and must be done by the Lamb of God alone, as has been stated above, there is no concession or compromise on this article either. The first article does not permit it. If there were reasonable palpists, one would speak to them following, in the following friendly fashion. Why do you cling so uh, tenaciously to your masses? After all, if they are purely human invention, they are not commanded by God. And we are to discard all human inventions. For Christ says, in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines and the precepts of men. Matthew fifteen nine. The mass is unnecessary, and, and so it can be omitted without sin and danger. The sacrament can be had in a far better and more blessed manner. Indeed, the only blessed manner according to the institution of Christ. Why then do you drive the world into wretchedness and woe on account of an unnecessary and fictitious matter when the sacrament can be had in another way and more blessed way? Let the people be told openly that the mass is trumpery, can be omitted without sin and that no one can be damned for not observing it and that one can be saved in a better way without the mass. Will the mass not collapse of itself? Not only will the rude rebel, but also for the ungodly, for also for all godly Christian, sensible God fearing people, especially if they hear it, that is dangerous thing, which has been fabricated and and invented without God's word and will. So he goes on to just really hammer the the kind of construct of the uh, Roman Catholic service. And this was a big thing that Lutherans really took on. And we'll, we'll dig more into this uh, closely because there's kind of going to be two battlefronts that Luther is going to take on when we reach the, uh, the Lord's Supper. One is the Roman Catholic view where it's the continuous resacrificing of Christ every Sunday or every time the Lord's table is administered. 
it's a re-sacrificing of Christ. And that is against, you know, obviously scripture. It's that in the Protestant view, that would essentially be declared heresy. And he takes a pretty staunch uh, hold against uh, Zwingli. And we'll see, you know, the conflict of word usage and uh, an understanding of how that plays out then. So uh, Luther uh, had a very strong distaste of the the mass and its construction and essentially a restriction for allowing people to hear the word of God being delivered. Because generally when the word of God was written or was read, it was read in Latin and nobody there could understand Latin because it was a dead language by this time. And they would read it in Latin and then uh, expound what they read, but they could, they had all the flexibility in the world to manipulate what they read. And so that's where they lead into all sorts of, you know, wacky doctrines such as the, you know, invocation of the saints, which was what we're going to look at here next. And, uh, we look at, um, you know, the, the purgatory concept of having to pay the, uh, uh, the toll ferry, if you would, to get out of purgatory, um, indulgences. I mean, that's what the 95 theses were written against was simply the indulgences. So there's a lot that Luther didn't like about the mass, but there were aspects to it that which he wanted to preserve that which is commanded by Christ and should be uh, demonstrated to the congregation uh, in the office of the keys. And that essentially is the binding and loosening of sin. But that doesn't mean that the church has the ability to determine what sin is. That is what God does. What we have the ability to do in the church is to name the sin and then in the name of Christ have that sin forgiven. Because all the sin has been forgiven by Christ on the cross, and so we are just simply providing the reminder to the to the congregant that their sin has been forgiven. But first, we must name the sin. That's why when we uh, have you know conversations, whether it's it's not necessarily I wouldn't call it confession because we don't have a booth or anything like the Roman Catholics do. But when I have a you know conversation with a person and they're you know ex- demonstrating to me that they you know have recently gone through some some pretty rough waters and they've sinned a lot or they backslid slid and what you know whatever it may be it is crucial to name the sin in that moment because you have to draw to light what it is this person has done and then you must have it forgiven And so that's why the confession and absolution is so crucial at the beginning of church services for the Lutherans, because we name our sin in front of God and we then hear the words that we are forgiven. So we have this invocation of the saints. This was one that Luther against, uh, again, kind of strongly stands against. He says the invocation of the saints is one of the abuses of the antichrist. It is in conflict with the first chief article and undermines the knowledge of Christ. It is neither commanded nor recommended nor does it have any precedent in scriptures. Even if the invocation of saints were a precious practice, which it is not, we have everything a thousandfold better in Christ. For those who don't know, the invocation of the saints essentially is the preaching or praying to saints, those who are dead, and asking them to intercede for us. As Luther has just stated, this is ne- there's no precedent anywhere in the scriptures for this practice. And he goes, and I love how he says, why do this when we have everything a thousandfold better in Christ? That Jesus is the better of all of it. 
So why would we go to Mary? Why would we turn to Peter? Why would we turn to any of the, you know, ch- uh, church saints over time who have been long past and, and ask them to do anything for us when they're dead and in heaven praising Christ? They could care less about us on earth. But the the, the Pope and the uh, Roman Catholics love to assert this notion. Although the angels in heaven uh, pray for us as Christ himself does, and all those saints on earth and perhaps also in heaven do likewise. It does not follow that we should invoke angels or saints to pray for them, keep fasts and festivals for them, say masses and other sacrifices to them, establish churches, altars, or services for them, serve them in, in, in still other ways, regard them as helpers in the time of need, and attribute all sorts of help to them, assigning to each of them a special function as the palpists teach and practice. This is idolatry. Such honor belongs to Christ alone. As a Christian and a saint on earth, you can pray for me, not in one particular necessity only, but in every kind of need. However, I should not on this account pray for you, invoke you, keep fasts or festivals, and say masses and other sacrifices in your honor, or trust in you for my salvation. There are other ways in which I can honor, love, and thank you in Christ. If such idolatrous honor is withdrawn from the angels and dead saints, the honor that remains will do no harm and will quickly be forgotten. When spiritual and physical benefit and help are not are no longer expected, the saints will cease to be molested in their graves and in heaven. For no one will long remember, esteem, or honor them out of love when there is no expectation of return. In short, we cannot allow but must condemn the mass its implications and its consequences in order that we may retain the Holy Sacrament and its purity and certainty among the institution of Christ and may use, may use it and receive it in faith. So again, he takes a very staunch, uh, angle against, um, the mass and the Pope for that matter. Uh, as, as we will see now, the palpacies, the final article in this part, which is what we will cover today. Because chapel uh, chapters and monasteries are just two uh, brief statements. He says the chapters and monasteries in which former times have been founded with good intentions for the education of learned men and decent women should be restored to such purposes in order that we may have pastors, preachers, and other ministers in the church. Others who are necessary for secular government and cities and states and also well-trained girls to become mothers and housekeepers. They are unwilling to serve this purpose. If they are unwilling to serve this purpose, it would be better to abandon them and tear them down rather than to preserve them with their blasphemous acts invented by men, which claim to be superior to the ordinary Christian life and to the offices and callings established by God. After all, or all this too is in conflict with the first fundamental article concerning the redemption in Christ Jesus. Besides, like other human inventions, all this that is without commandment, unnecessary, and useless. Moreover, it causes dangerous and needless effort. And according to the prophets, calls such service to God a ven that is vanity. All right. And then to close out this article, to, or part two of this, these articles, uh, we have the palpacy. Uh, Luther takes another strong stance against uh, the Pope and his doings. And we will read through some of these. We won't read through all 16 statements because they're pretty long. But we'll read through a few of them and we'll just highlight some points of what he's saying. Uh, He kicks it off here. He says, the Pope is not the head of all Christendom 
and divine right, or according to God's word, for this position belongs only to one, namely to Jesus Christ. The Pope is only the bishop and pastor of the churches in Rome, and such other churches as have been attached themselves to him voluntarily or through human institution, that is secular government. These churches did not choose to be under him as an overlord, but choose to stand beside him as a Christian brethren and and companions as the ancient councils in the time of Cyprian prove. But now no bishop dares to call the Pope brother, as it was then customary, but must address him as most gracious lord, as if he were king or emperor. This we neither will, nor should, nor can take upon our consciences. Those who wish to do so had better not count on us. All right, so those are the first two statements here in this particular article. Let's jump down to five and six. Manifestly, to repeat, that has already been said often, the palpacy is a human invention, and it is not committed. It is unnecessary, and it is useless. The Holy Christian Church can exist very well without such a head, and would have remained much better if such a head had not been raised up by the devil. The palpacy is of no use to the church because it exercises no Christian office. Consequently, the church must continue to exist without the Pope. Let's jump down to article or statement 10 here. It says, this is a powerful demonstration that the Pope is the real Antichrist who has raised himself over and set himself against Christ. For the Pope will not permit Christians to be saved except by his own power with Uh, which amounts to nothing since it is neither established nor commanded by God. This is actually what St. Paul exalting oneself over and against God. Neither the Turks nor the Tartars, great as they are enmity against Christians, do this. Those who desire to do so, they allow to believe in Christ, and they receive boldly tribute and obedience from Christians. However, the Pope will not permit such faith, but asserts that one must be obedient to him in order to be saved. This we are unwilling to do, even if we have to die for it in God's name. Finally, it is the most diabolical for the Pope to promote his lies about masses, purgatory, monastic life, and human works and services, which are the essence of the palpacy. In contradiction to God, and to damn, slay, and plague all Christians who do not exalt and honor these abominations uh, of his above all things. Accordingly, just as we cannot adhere the devil himself as our Lord, accordingly, just as we cannot adore the devil himself as our Lord, so we cannot suffer his apostle, the Pope, or the Antichrist to govern us as our head or Lord. For deception, murder, and eternal destruction of the body and soul are characteristic of his palpable government as I've demonstrated in many books. So Luther has a couple more statements on the Pope, but he, again, just asserts his overall stance of of being against the Pope. In fact, I would encourage you to grab A Freedom of a Christian. It's uh, free online if you can Google, and uh, you can read it. It's short. It's about 15 pages long with his opening letter uh, to the king, but he hammers out the Pope, pretty hard in this letter, uh, the freedom of a Christian. And so I would encourage you to go and read some of that and you'll see Luther's strong distaste for the palpacy. So that's going to wrap, uh, our little journey today in the small called articles, part one and two next week, we will look at part three and probably venture through, uh, the small catechism. We'll, 
we'll breeze through some of the articles next week because we've t- hammered on quite a bit of them uh, so far. And then uh, we will – I'm going to try to grab my calendar here real quick because I'm going to see where uh, I've got coming up here, and that one's not going to work. i got two computer screens in my face, and neither one works. So this will air uh, on the 12th of April, and this will actually be during Holy Week, so we'll be between Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday as this airs. Uh, and then after Easter on the 19th, we will re- uh, wrap out – the book of Concord will finish um, the uh, article or the part three and the small catechism. Then I think on the 25th, we will begin to release our uh, sacrament series. I'm not, I'm not fully convinced on that, but I I think it would be pretty neat because that Friday, the 29th flame who has been a guest on this show is releasing a new album on uh, baptism. And so I think it would be kind of neat to have these two events line up a little bit and, uh, you know, we can maybe promote a little bit on the show and get people out to grab his album. Pretty excited for it. I can't wait for it to drop. Uh, I've been anxiously waiting for a while on this work. I'm very excited for it. So that, that, that is that. And we will, uh, get back at it. And continue this journey explaining the Lutheran faith and and hopefully uh, explaining some of the interesting nuances and and um, but once we get through the Book of Concord, I think it'll really pick up some speed and momentum because uh, we will venture into some more crucial Lutheran doctrine and we'll actually see uh, how some of the Lutheran theologians and time have reconciled what Luther has written and teach that in to their students and to their churches. And so we will see how that has expanded over the last 500 years. And we will see how that lines up and is similar to the reformed or Calvinist circles and where it differs. So I think after we finish this, that series will really uh, pick up speed. So uh, stay tuned. Friday, we will be back at it with another episode on Jonah, and then we'll be back next week to wrap up the Small Called Articles. Until then, guys, have a great week. God bless. Love you all. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.